Interesting, I was thinking out of last week's experience about power outages. I was thinking about blackouts. I was thinking about the experience I think most of us have had in our own homes. It's always interesting when the power goes out in the suburbs or in a city, whether you live in an apartment or a basement apartment or in a home or a condo, when it happens just around dusk, when, when you're getting ready and everything is okay and your PVR is set and suddenly the power goes out. And suddenly we have a decision to make because we don't have any light anymore. And so, well, what do we do? We tend to get one of two things in preparation for the evening because we have no clue how long the blackout's going to be. What do we get? We get flashlights. We get candles. I mean, this is what we do. This is how we survive the great middle-class crisis called the blackout for three hours. Right? So this is what we get. And we use these to produce light. Now, what's really interesting is that Things are getting darker in our culture. There is a blackout that is coming spiritually that actually the West has not seen in a very long time. It is getting darker and darker. It is harder, hear me, it is harder. It's going to get even more difficult to be a Christian in Canada in the next 15 years. It is. It's going to be more and more difficult within the West to be a follower of Jesus. The obstacles are getting bigger. The criticism is getting louder. Now suddenly we are not in the center of society or in the middle of society. We are now being moved to the fringes of society, which by the way is fine. And as things are perpetually getting darker, we now have a new thing to face down. And here it is. Everyone ready? For 50 to 100 years, we as Christians have thought it has been enough to declare, I am a flashlight. For 100 years, we've said, well, I am a candle. God's made me a candle. But you know how candles have power? Not because they're a candle, but because something else, everyone pray this works, <laughs> lights it. It is an external thing. That lights the candle. It's batteries in a flashlight that make it shine in the darkness. It is no longer good enough to declare, but God has made me a flashlight. It's not going to be strong enough to push back the darkness by declaring, but we're all candles, God. It's not going to be good enough that churches get together and say, oh, aren't we all, all a nice group of candles? Unless... Unless a fire and an energy and a power that is not inherent to a flashlight or a candle shows up and empowers us. It's not good enough to say I'm a Christian anymore. It's not good enough to say we have a nice building. It's not good enough. It's not going to be cool enough to have great worship anymore. Because our culture is systematically deciding Jesus and Christians should not be heard. Now I love this. Because what we had 60 years ago was confusion. Because everyone sort of did the church thing. And who cares? But when things get darker and lines are drawn in the sand, not politically, we're not talking about that garbage. But when lines are drawn in the sand, suddenly you either have to shine or you don't. And let's remember something. 
That we're into this, not for politics, we're not into this so we can be moral, we're not into this to transform Canada into some Christian nation. No, no. We are into this because we want people to be brought out of darkness into light and be given eternal life. So listen very closely this morning. Because what we are about to explore as a church in the book of Ephesians is Paul's deep intercessory cry that the church would not only know what it is, but he calls upon God himself to fill us with such unnatural fire, such batteries from heaven, that no matter how dark it gets, the darkness will be dispelled by a light that is not inherent in us. Remember, when you're in your apartment and all the lights are out, and you turn on a candle, shadows have to run. Paul, last week we were reading his book in Ephesians. And it's an amazing book. Isn't it interesting that the culture we are living in is just like Ephesus? Ephesus, a great multicultural city, a banking center. The whole world was there. Immigration, all sorts of colors and foods. It's just like the city we love. We love that the nations are here. We love the diversity. But also, interestingly, Ephesus was the heartbeat of occultic and supernatural and spiritual power. Oh, very much like here. And Paul begins to write to this church to tell them how to keep living and going in moments of profound darkness. And do you remember where he started? He didn't start with the darkness. He didn't start with gloom. He didn't start even with the good things. He didn't even start with us. He starts with God. And as we saw last week, as we read Ephesians chapter 1, we saw, we heard, we were reassured that God is sovereign and that God is for us and that God together is working on our behalf. So as I get going this morning, I want you to take a moment and I'd like everyone to go quiet. I know lots of people have come in this morning with lots of baggage in their minds. You're thinking about children and Facebook and Swishelay and trouble and the argument you had with your spouse or your friend. By the way, don't leave any of that at the door. I hate when Christians say that. Bring your stuff in. Our guy here knows how to deal with it all. Bring all your stuff in. But take a moment. Close your eyes. No, no this is like kindergarten. Everyone close your eyes. I'd like everyone to take a deep breath. No, please do that. And hear this. I want you to really this morning hear and remember all the things that God has already declared over us as a people. As we heard out of Ephesians chapter 1 last week, out of agape love, out of God's love, he has declared this over you and over us. We together are saints. We together have grace. We together have peace. We together are included in Christ. We together are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. We at this moment are seated with Jesus. We together are elected and chosen and called and foreknown. We at this moment are a people that are adopted. We together are sons and daughters of God. We together at this moment have redemption. At this moment, we together have forgiveness of sins. We together, if you are a Christian, have been branded, tattooed, and sealed by the Holy Spirit until Jesus' return. And we together can declare with confidence that we are God's possession. That is truth. You can open your eyes. 
That is truth. Whether you feel it all the time or not, whether you wonder and question, that's fine. But this is truth over us, and this is truth over you if you follow Jesus. And that is where Paul begins as we face down darkness. And yet there is an inherent tension of knowing about something versus knowing it, believing it, living under it, living with all the above, and really believing it. See, this is the pink elephant in the room in the church. Where we know so much and yet so little transformation happens in the everyday. We know so much about and yet we still do not deeply know. It's like you say, well, I know you, John. I follow you on Instagram. I like your pictures sometimes. I follow you on Twitter. I know that you like cheese whiz on, you know, on inappropriate things like pancakes. I didn't like that. I know because I've said hi to you in the call. I've had a coffee with you once. I've seen you preach, so I, I know you. No, you don't. You know lots about me. You can know my mistakes or my failures. You can see me walking with my family. But that's not knowing. That's knowing about. You can know a politician. You can know a sports legend. You can know all the stats about them. But that is not biblical knowing. And the scriptures are clear that we are called... Not only to know about who our God is and what he's done, but actually know it. But the question is this. How do we move from hearing but not doing, hearing but doubting, hearing but not letting God all, all, God's already work take place and root in our life? So how do we get from here to there? How do we really get transformed by the truth of God as darkness is growing around us? Well, notice where under the Holy Spirit, Paul is led as he's writing this part of Scripture. If you turn to Ephesians 1, after he outlines everything that's been so profound about the sovereignty of God and God's work in our life, this is what happens next. Suddenly, on the spot, as Paul is writing, he breaks out in this unbelievable prayer, and he records it. And this is a prayer that we would truly know the good news of God in our lives. And as we're about to see, never forget, this prayer is rooted, I want you to hear this, this prayer is rooted in, built upon, presumes wholeheartedly, and embraces the sovereign work of God no matter where you are. And this prayer is uttered and given for one reason, that you this morning, that that church 2,000 years ago, that we at C4 will really get it. And what's, like, what are we getting? All the things that have already been stated over us. See, it's one thing to hear about something, to intellectually understand something. It's a whole other thing to really believe, embrace, and live out what is true. And so Paul, at this moment, begins to utter a prayer that ends up being a 203-word sentence. He does this in one breath. You think I talk fast. Talk to Paul. 203 words. And he does this prayer, and he records it. And it starts in verse 15 like this. For this reason... Ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. For this reason, what reason? Because of everything that I've just told you that who you are, that you're saints, called, elected, adopted. And not only that, what I keep on hearing, I am moved to prayer time and time again. He says, I am moved by your faith. Now the question is, what does he mean by faith? And the answer is, them becoming Christians. He says, I am moved, I am excited because I have heard about the saving faith, the conversion, you moving from darkness to light, you are becoming followers of Jesus, and it is so exciting to me. 
He'll outline what this faith is in the next chapter in Ephesians 2.8. Listen closely, church, this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. This is the great call of salvation that we have in our movement. It is deeply offensive to the world that is spiritual, religious, and secular. Why? Because all those who are spiritual and secular and religious in all of their forms declare, I am the master of my own destiny, and by what I do, I can control, be known by God, or live a good life. And our gospel declares that we are broken and sinful, and it is God who intervenes, and God who gives us grace, and our works never give us the introduction to God. It's what John Stott wrote so long ago. Either we preach that human beings are rebels against God under his just judgment and if left to themselves, lost, and that Christ crucified who bore their sins and curse is the only available Savior, or we emphasize the opposite, human potential and human ability with Jesus brought in only to boost them with no necessity for the cross except to exhibit God's love and inspire us to greater endeavor. The former is the way to be faithful. The latter is the way to be popular. It is not possible to be faithful and popular at the same time. See, he declares, he says, I am so excited that I have heard that you as people under God's sovereign work have embraced your true condition before God and that God has worked a miracle in your lives and the proof is you have said, yes, would you like Jesus? Yes, I want to accept Jesus. I've seen your conversion. I've seen your transformation. I've seen that God has sovereignly and graciously intervened in your life. But more, not only have you met Jesus, you actually love each other. This isn't just some church thing for you. You love each other, and I am praying into that. What type of love? Sexual love? No. Friendship love? Natural affection? No, no, it's deeper than that. It's agape love. It's God-given love. It is this decision that you keep making to put up and love with one another, even though it's difficult. It's the opposite of what Jonathan Swift said so long ago. Many of us have enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love each other. And Paul says, no, no, that's not happening with you. You are actually being profoundly changed. And so, verse 16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in your prayers because of your conversion, the establishment of the church, darkness being dispelled, and God working in you, loving each other. Like, I am moved to prayer. Now, here's something that's the first test of love in the church. Everyone ready? I preached this at 9.05 in a different way last Sunday night. When was the last time you as a follower of Jesus, if you are one this morning, got unbelievably excited when you saw God work in someone else. Think about it. That you're walking through the church and you suddenly hear that someone confessed sin and were set free or, or, or someone had a vision of Christ and, and their morals have deeply changed because they're worshiping Jesus or there was a new insight. When was the last time you went by a church and went, oh my goodness, I heard like Calvary Baptist had 30 baptisms last week or Pickering Pentecostal. I mean, I'm here an amazing, like see, most of us go, what about me, God? Where's my blessing this morning? What does Paul do? Paul stops, and he is looking like a hawk to see where God is moving in individual lives and in movements. And as he's looking, when he sees where God is really moving, what does he do? He stops, and he prays that God would do it more. And then he thanks God for what he's doing. And then, oh, here it is. He tells the people he prayed for them. How different would our church be 
If on a regular basis we all made the decision to look for God sightings in each other, and when we saw them, instead of being jealous or bitter or distracted, we stopped and said, Whoa, I cannot believe God is moving. I'm so excited. Oh, God, do more in that person's life. Do more in that connect group. Oh, God, I thank you for it. And then you go and say, just so you know, the way you've been you know, serving my kids in the back, telling my daughter and sons about Jesus, I'm just telling you, I'm praying for you. Do you think that would change C4 Kids, the workers' hearts? Do you think, what would, thank you so much. You're up here every week with your guitar, and I know that you love Jesus, and you're leading me to Jesus. I just want to say, like, I am praying that God does greater things in your life so you can lead me better so I can know him. Like, do you see the selflessness in Paul's prayer? The spiritual discipline of looking, thanking, praying, and telling. Let's see that happen and change our church. Because Paul is saying, I am deeply, deeply excited that this is taking place among you. And so since this is happening, here's what I'm going to pray for you, he says. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so you might know him better. Okay, C4, everyone needs to pay attention now. Paul is committing something called intercession. He stands in the gap. He decides that things can even be more profound than they are. And so he does not pray for himself. He prays for others. It's what Richard Foster calls intercessory prayer. When he wrote, when we move from our petitions to intercession, we are shifting the gravity, our center of gravity from our own needs to the needs and concerns of other people. And intercessory prayer is selfless prayer and self-giving prayer. Paul calls upon God, God in his fullness. Do you notice it? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And he says, oh God in your fullness, will you not personally act and move among your people? Now notice what Paul doesn't pray. Paul doesn't pray, oh God, help them pull up their bootstraps more so they get it. Oh God, they're sort of stupid. I told them all these amazing things about them, but they still don't get it, so I don't know. Go slap them. Oh God, just please do something. No, no. He cries out this, O God of glory, O God who lives in the place called eternity, O God whose glorious existence has been fully revealed through Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit in greater measure upon the church so they get a greater wisdom and revelation of who you are. This is not a prayer for illumination, the writing of the Bible. This is revelation. Holy Spirit, he's saying, Help them to experience and grow more and more in the relationship they already have with you. Paul is praying that what he has declared over them would be accepted by them, understood by them, that they would grow into what they already are. See, here's the truth. Any great insight into your relationship with God will only happen through the Holy Spirit. Can I say that again? Only through the whole, everything that happens in your life that's God-centered is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that introduces us to God, convicts us of sin, lets us see Jesus, makes us see Jesus, gives us the ability to accept Jesus, allows us to walk like Jesus, lets us understand Jesus, gives us desires that aren't even our own to love the Bible and become like it. Every time you meet the Holy Spirit, Jesus is right there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of what? Christ. It's what's said in Ephesians, uh, sorry, Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. And so he prays this prayer 
Oh God, send your spirit upon the church that already has the spirit in greater measure so they will have greater wisdom and revelation about what? Who you are and what you've done. And then he prays it. I am praying that you as a church will know him better. More, not less. More this year than last year. More this decade than the last decade. More and more. See, if you think this morning or your actions reflect that there is not more to your walk with God, something is terribly wrong in your walk. If you really believe there's more to grace and more to love and more of holiness and more of God's work in the world that involves you, but this desire is not found in your day-to-day, something has become stale in you. Something has become calloused in you. Your heart has become hard. And so here's what Paul prays. Oh God, when they get blinded, oh God, when they get distracted, Oh God, when they think they've arrived. Oh God, when they think you don't have anything more to give. Oh God, when Christians start believing that you don't want to meet them in a deeper way. Oh God, send the Holy Spirit so they know. He says, I want you to know God better through the Spirit. And then he prays in verse 18. I am praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I am praying that your inner eyes, your spiritual vision, your eyesight will be very clear. I am asking God to do something among you you cannot naturally do. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and let them see God and you very much more. Open the eyes of the church. Here's the power of this. Many Christians sitting here today, you are no longer spiritually blind, but you're still legally spiritually blind. Many, many, many people who are blind legally still can see a few things. So you are not officially 100% blind because you are now a Christian. Your eyes have been opened to the gospel and to Christ. And yet many of you choose or do not even know that you live a life of legal blindness and you don't need to anymore. And Paul comes and he prays this powerful prayer. And he says, I am praying that Christians' hearts would be enlightened and what would happen, he says, if, if God, you would do this. If you would answer my prayer, God, and the Spirit of God would come in a heaviness across the church, and eyes would be opened even more, what will happen? He says it in verse 18. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparable great power for us, us who believe. That power is the same as his mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. This is what he prays. Ready, church? He says, I pray for hope, I pray for value, and I pray for power. These are the batteries. These are the matches this church needs. He says, oh God, let them know and let them live in the hope that is already true over them. Let them know that there's hope Our election, our adoption, our being sealed by the Spirit, our forgiveness. God, you have made a move already that is radical, positive, powerful, and it is permanent. Let them get it, God. Build their identity there, God. Build their unity in their church there, God. Build their faithfulness, God. Build their courage among darkness out of your work already in their lives. Hope over despair. Hope over fear. Hope over rejection. Hope over sickness and over the lost dreams in that church. Hope over failures. Hope over Satan's presence. Hope over death. Hope over darkness. Oh God, let them be people of hope. 
He says, God, if you don't do this, they'll go back to what they were. They'll become legally blind. And if there's no hope in the church, there's no hope for the world because we are Christ on earth. He says, oh God, I pray for hope in this community. He says, but not just hope. I pray before you, O oh God, that they would know their intrinsic value before you. We are God's possessions, he for. He says, oh God, that that Ephesians church, that we together might see and know the value which is already placed on us. Think about it this morning. Out of the whole of creation, water and stars and elephants, out of all the universes that are universes that are universes that fill the cosmos, out of the best food and the best art and the best ability, God has decided that you and we are his most valued treasure and relationship. Do you believe that this morning? Because many of you do not. You are God's most valuable thing in all of creation. And he prays, oh God, oh God, would they get it? Would they understand? Would they feel it? Would they know their God-given value because of the work of Jesus Christ? It's like what I quoted in the last major series from Thomas Merton. I've got lots of questions for Thomas, but this is a great quote. He says, you cannot tell me who I am. And I cannot tell you who you are, but if you do not know your own identity, who is going to identify you? And that is the question, and this is the answer Paul is giving. Who gets to form you? Who gets to center us? Who gets to affirm us? Who gets the final say on the core of who we are? Is it you? Is it others? Is it the worldview of our culture? Is it your economic status? Is it your choice and your preference sexually? Is it gender? Is it skin culture? Is it skin color? Is it culture? Is it family? Now all of those are connected to identity. But for we who are followers of Jesus, our core identity, the truths that are deepest and highest that affect, and here's the word, rule everything else. Is God the Father's call expressed through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, making us saints? And Paul says, Oh God, if you don't on a regular basis intervene in the church, they're not going to believe. Actually, God, they're going to live like you're a liar. Give them hope, let them know their inheritance. And not only may hope grow, and may they know a value that is intrinsically given from another place, but I pray they would know this, verse 19. I pray that they would know his incomparable great power for us who believe. The same power, that power is the same as the mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly realms. He says, oh God, I want the church to be a place of supernatural, humble, meek, but unbelievable power. Do you know in Greek, I didn't get this because you miss it in English. Paul uses four different words in this verse for power, these two verses. What he's doing is almost like he's pancaking it. It's like a waterfall. He uses every single word he can think about that is about power, and he just keeps putting them together. Why? Because he's saying, don't you understand? Don't you understand the power that is already in you, church? The power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is in you right now. It's like a nuclear upon nuclear upon nuclear explosion. Jesus was dead for three days, really physically dead, and God said, come to life, and Jesus came to life. That same power is found in 
in every single boring, broken Christian. That power is the one that moved us from darkness to light. It's the same power that was upon Jesus, and it's upon us. And he says, oh God, Spirit of God, come upon the church so they know that this power has not changed. It's the same power that gives us victory over sin. The same power that has overcome the evil one. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, oh God, please, church, do you want to see? Do you want to understand? Do you want to know the magnitude of this power? I do not want you to underestimate what has happened. This is what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. That power is the same power that was upon you and is still in you at this moment. It says he was raised from the dead. It's interesting, in Greek it actually reads, and Jesus was raised from among the dead ones. Why, that's, why that matters is um, the image here is of Jesus being surrounded by thousands of corpses, dead people. And suddenly in the middle of that mass graveyard where death has had the final say, and nothing else can be done Because when goodbye happens, it's goodbye, right? Jesus comes out of the grave. And Paul writes it like this to say, and that's not the end. He's only the first of many. Millions upon millions upon millions who trust in him will be raised like him too. That's why every Christian funeral is not like any other funeral on earth. We weep, we're torn, we're broken, we're sad, we're angry, we question, and then we say, and this is not the end. And so Paul says this power rose Jesus into the heavenly realms. And it's interesting, notice verse 21. And and where is Jesus seated now? In the heavenly realms. Far above, verse 21, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He is above every angel. He's above every demon. He's above every person over everything. There is no name. There is no power. There is no authority. There is nothing greater than Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God. See, for Paul, ruler and authority and dominion was the way to talk about demons. This is what Lori preached on two weeks ago in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, here's the declaration, Paul says. You want to know how much power there is in you this morning? Well, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he's above every ruler. And Jesus is stronger than any authority. And Jesus is higher than any power. And Jesus is more profound than any spiritual force claiming any realm in any way. Through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, death is broken, sin has lost his power, and Satan in the kingdom of darkness no longer can claim dominion over us. I love how it's even declared this way in Colossians. Paul gives one worse summary of this great defeat of our unseen enemy. Let me read it from the message in Colossians 2.15. He said, And he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross, and he marched them naked through the streets. Christ's victory is total over any and all enemies against the human condition and family. Every title that can be given, every name that can be named, every politician, every person of profound philosophy, every theologian, there will be no one greater than Jesus ever. There's no more power, no more intellect, no more awareness, no will, no dignity, no love. His absolute love 
has overcome all things. And it says in verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet, and he appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you, did you see it? Why did he do all this? For the, for the what? Anyone? Church? Are you telling me that Jesus overcame all the kingdom of darkness for you? Yes. Are you telling me that Jesus came when he didn't have to because he loved us? Yes. Are you telling me that everything that God has ever done, first for his glory, all the benefits are for us sitting in here and any believer? Yes, he has done all of this for us because our God is a loving God. And he fills everything. And I love this. This is a declaration that he is above the church, but also he actually fills the church. What does that mean? We have the same power that was upon Jesus. Jesus Christ is among us today. The body plus the, body plus the head equals Christ. We are Jesus on earth for the world. And he fills everything. He fills everything. And then he says, Amen. I want you to see this passage for what it is this morning, everyone. This prayer reveals that, that though many know and have walked with Jesus for a long time, there is more for us than what we currently walk in. It's why we're praying for renewal and revival. See, for church, there is more for you, and there is more for us together. And, and how will our unity change in this church? How will we all be in this together? How will we grow? Here it is, when this prayer is continually prayed, and then it's answered among us. And you say, well, John, I'm not sure if, uh, if I pray it, it's going to be answered. Are you telling me? No, no, no. This is Scripture. God always says yes to his own word. This church, if we would commit to this prayer, oh, how revolution would take place in the heart. Think about all the barriers this morning to this prayer. Right now, sitting among us, right here, all of us, let's be honest. It's Oprah time. We're going to sit on the couch. No, really. Every barrier to this prayer being answered, all of you online, all the lies sitting in this room, like God can see them all right now. Every lie you have about another person in your head, every lie you have about yourself, Every lie you have about a leader or a follow church or an extra, like everything that you think is right and actually isn't. All the bad theology, all the wrong ideas about God and his work, all the pain just sitting in this room could fill the world. The generational biases, your family upbringing, then there's just sin, known and unknown, the demonic. They're here right now in this room. Some of them are actually in some of you. Many of them talking as I'm preaching. Don't listen. Laziness, confusion, distraction. The list goes on and on. I love Paul for this reason. Why does Paul pray this over his people? And why does Paul pray this into his people? And why does Paul pray this? Uh, here it is. Because he knows that God's work could be lost, stolen, choked out, or ignored. So this is what Paul does. Paul goes to the only one that has no problem passing right through every barrier I've mentioned and the ones I haven't and touching someone's eyes and saying, I'm going to let you see now. Our God walks through walls from what I read to scripture. Amen? No problem. Our God can show up anywhere. Your sin isn't big enough for him. Your past pain isn't big enough. Your bad theology, no problem. He can handle with that, no problem. 
Our God can walk through any barrier we put up. We don't know that we're putting up. Our family put up. Our culture puts up. The evil one puts up. He can walk right through it, and he can say, now I am going to put my hands on your eyes, and spiritually I'm going to let you see who I am, who you are, and what's going on, because I have things for you to do. Paul says, I'm not going to waste my time with another lecture. I'm not just going to keep doing this and hope things work. No, spirit of the living God, come and let the church see. Let the church see. And when they see, watch out. Here's what Paul prayed over his church. Here's what every church should be praying. He says, oh God, here's the first thing. Note takers, you can write it. Oh God, give us more of the Holy Spirit. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you might know him better. We need to, as a church, pray more and more that the Holy Spirit moves among us. He reveals Jesus Christ, who reveals the Father. He reveals and we begin to accept what is true about us, that we have revelation so we do not give into darkness. If you are afraid of the Holy Spirit, which many of you are, don't worry. He's the spirit of Jesus. Say yes to him. The challenge is, do you think you know God enough? Or are you willing to lay down your pride or your fear and say, I'm not satisfied anymore? Oh God, send the Holy Spirit. Prayer one. Prayer two, oh God, open our eyes. I remind you as I end that this is written to Christians, not to non-Christians in this case. I am praying that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened to God, his work, and his perpetual love for you. He says, oh God, send the Holy Spirit upon the church that already has the Spirit of God. Oh God, open their eyes. And then this is what he prays. Oh God, may, our, may, uh, may you grow our hope. They need to know they have a guaranteed inheritance. They need to know something else. Because why? Well, here it is. Everyone ready? Our culture offers no basis for hope. Human stupidity rules the day in many decisions. Racism, mistakes, terrorism, global epidemics, AIDS and otherwise. We live in a broken, fallen world. And then there's our own heart, our own stuff, our own garbage, our own crap that we half the time can't even work at ourselves. There is no, listen, in the suburbs we get buffeted, we get guarded from this because some of us have money compared to the rest of the world. But that still doesn't, in the end of the day, really, really stop us from feeling the hopelessness we all are surrounded by. And what does Paul say? But that's not true of us. Because our hope isn't based that we have a two-car garage. Our, car, our hope isn't that we have RSPs. No, our hope is God the Father called us. God the Son died for us. God the Holy Spirit possesses us. Eternal life is ours. And we have purpose because of Jesus. So he says, oh God, oh God, let them know their hope. And then he says, oh God, reveal their value. Let each Christian in the church know how you see them and let that be intrinsically how they value themselves. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Say it. Say it louder. <laughs> but what? Lie. Lie, 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 lie. Sticks and stones will break our bones, and words will perpetually hurt us. How many times have I sat with people and said, when you were five years old, what did someone say to you? And they say, I remember it was Jimmy. He said this to me. And I'm like, you're 45. I, I remember it right now. Every one of us, if I asked every, if it was testimony time, and every, tell, you'd stand up. 
15, 21. My mom said this. My dad said this. My friend said this. This bully said this. I said this over myself. See, the power of words can bring creation or death. And here's his prayer. Oh God, may your truth have more power than any curse that has been declared over your people. Any curse. Self-inflicted or otherwise. He says, oh God, send the Holy Spirit. Oh God, open the eyes of the church. Oh God, pray for hope that will never, ever, ever go out. A light that cannot be stuffed out. Oh God, I pray for value. And then he says, oh God, send power that is not their own so they can live in a dark place. As one theologian said, Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but but dead having great rich theories of justification, but powerless when it comes to the transformation of people's lives. It doesn't matter if you have all the right doctrine, if you yourself are not being transformed by Jesus and others around you are also being transformed. True biblical knowledge is experienced, not just debated. He says, send the power of God upon us. Send the character of Jesus, the spiritual gifts, and power over the evil one. You want to see a church that's hopping from a biblical worldview? It is where love and joy and peace and patience, the fruit of the Spirit, is growing. It is where every person knows their spiritual gift and is using it in humility. And it is where the evil one, principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities, are being systematically removed from the church and from the culture because people are using their authority given to them by Jesus. So Paul says these prayers. God, we're so excited for what you've done. But since it's getting really dark in Ephesus, I need to pray this for my friends. And so I end by saying this to you, my friends. As Paul prayed over his church, so I, as one of your leaders, want to pray this for you and for us. Because this prayer will be answered by God. Because this prayer was written under the Holy Spirit himself. And so as the band comes up and prepares, let me pray this over us. With great expectation. Not fearing the darkness. Because it's okay that things are getting dark. It's okay. Because we don't want... We don't want fake. We want real. And so just prepare yourself. And Lord, as I pray this, here's what I'd like to ask. I pray this for our whole church, kids and tweens and teens and young adults and adults, all of us and and seniors, that you would just answer this prayer. And so Paul wrote, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease in giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That... that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may now give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God, we pray, send the Holy Spirit on this church in a way that has never been done. Thick, overcoming, profound, palpable. Pray this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope at which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, send your spirit. Lord God, open our eyes. Oh God, grow hope in our church. Oh God, reveal our value. Oh God. Oh God, please send the power that we need. Light the candle. Send the power for the batteries so flashlights can be true. So as darkness grows, please, oh, that thousands in Durham would meet Jesus Christ. Mercy, Lord. Mercy. Mercy on us. Mercy on this region. Mercy, please, for the stakes are eternal. We ask this in the name of God the Father who decided to love us, God the Son who bled in our place and prays for us perpetually, and God the Holy Spirit who is in us and possesses us, makes us like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.